We have so much to be thankful for. Um, the song that we just sang, Give Thanks. You know, it's a little bit older. My parents, when they came to faith, were probably singing that song. But how true it is, we are the weak, and he has made us strong in him, and we are the poor, and he has given us unimaginable riches. Um, we certainly have a lot to be thankful for. I mean, it, it just sounds like a ridiculous understatement. <laughs> can hardly articulate how much he has given to us, how much he provides for us daily, every moment, every breath that you draw. So we have much to be thankful for. You know, let's just join together in a prayer of thanksgiving. How much you have given to us, God. And we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We aren't worth it. But you chose to give us worth. You chose to give us life. Life eternal. Life with you. Life that doesn't end. You chose to take us, these weak and frail and fragile vessels, and make us strong, to, to carry your glory. It is a wonder. And we are thankful for them. And these are the big things. You give us our food, and you give us our, our homes that are warm. You give us our families. You give us a country where we have freedom to get together and, and study your word and worship you. Oh God, we thank you. I pray that you would, you would fill our hearts with this thankfulness, with this gratitude all the time. All the time. That praises and thanksgiving would not depart from our lips. May we be a thankful people. And we thank you because we know you're going to answer that one day or another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark 4. We're going to wrap up the chapter. Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. And at some point in Sunday school, every single kid learns about this story or is told the story when Jesus calms the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Um, it is one of the most familiar Bible stories that there is. But often and unfortunately, when we get older, our understanding of this story stays at that third grade level. And we don't bother to explore it more. I want to show you today that there is a high degree of sophistication in this story. And Mark is trying to tell us something incredible as he writes this story down for us. So there's three things that I want you to see. Again, Mark is showcasing the godness of Jesus. And this story about Jesus calming the storm mirrors another famous Bible story that you learned when you were five years old, the story of Jonah. I'm just tie those two things together. Show you how Mark is tying those two things together. And the third thing I want to show you is that fear means that we do not believe 
Jesus is enough. All right, let's read our passage. Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, let's pray over this, this passage. Oh God, I pray that you would speak to us through these words, that what you have put here for us to see, we would see, that we would have eyes that would see and ears that would hear. Christ as God. Christ who has the authority to calm the waves and the wind. Christ, who is enough to satisfy our every desire to take us through any storm. Lay our hearts bare before this passage this morning, I pray, by the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, these are the events so far. Crowds were so large, threatening to press up and crush Jesus that he gets into a boat and he's preaching to the crowds from the water on a boat. He's using, he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about discipleship, he's talking about who he is, and he's conveying all of that through parables. And then, at some point, he decides that he's done preaching, and he says, let's go to the other side of the sea. And I think it's on the way that he gives the explanation for the parables that we saw in verses 10 through 20 in in chapter 4. And this story that we just read has every marker of being a first-hand account. You know, some of these that, that Mark writes down for us, they're, they're really just him retelling what he remembers um, Peter saying or what, what kind of has been passed down in, in church history up to that point, and he's writing them down for our, for our good. But some of these sound like an eyewitness is writing them down. And this is one of the stories because it has very specific details in it. Details that let us know it's historical. So when the disciples set off with Jesus just as he was, it probably means that Jesus didn't return to shore to get anything before they left for the other side of the sea. So they're going right from preaching. After they leave, uh, well, well, they're accompanied by a number of other boats as they leave. And then there are specific notes about Jesus sleeping on the stern of the boat, and he's sleeping on a cushion. All markers of a first-hand account. You wouldn't say that if you were making this up, for one, or if it's just a, a story about Jesus that was passed on through time. These are specific details. 
And I want you to know that. I want you to know that this is a first-hand account. Peter saw this. Peter was there. He told Mark, and Mark wrote it down. So when you know it, it was really happened because of how this parallels something else. How this parallels the story of Jonah. So this wasn't fabricated to fit the story of Jonah. This really happened. Because it's important for you to see, again, Jesus is reliving the history of Israel in a way that Israel never could. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. So he's, he's writing, like I said before, he's writing in a very sophisticated way to parallel these two events. Because one thing that God called Israel to do, to be, was a priestly nation to all other nations, to be a light to all other nations. This was Israel's purpose, to worship God and show all other nations how to worship God. And Jesus is doing what Israel could never do because constantly they hoard after other gods. When they went to the other nations, they became like the other nations. So Jesus is doing what Israel never could. So what, when he's done preaching the parables, when he decides to go to the other side of the lake, it's significant because what is on the other side of the lake? He's in Galilee when he's preaching, and Galilee has a huge Jewish population. On the other side of the lake, not so. That's the Decapolis. That's primarily Gentile territory. It's Roman territory. Very few Jews in the Decapolis. So when he says, let's go to the other side of the lake, he's telling the disciples, we're going to the Gentiles. He is the light unto the Gentiles. Just like when God chooses to send Jonah to the Gentiles. God said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And now Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were some terrible people. <laughs> they, were, they were the first great conquerors, conquerors of this region. And, and they conquered without mercy and with ferocity. They were incredibly violent. And there are uh, very detailed and illustrious stories about what they would do to the people that they conquered and where they would place them around their city on spikes in the way that they would dismember them and send them across their empires. They were a violent people. And Jonah did not want to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, to their capital, because he knew God. He knew that God would work and that the people would repent. And Jonah didn't think that these people were worthy of that repentance. So he decided not to go. He decided instead he would flee. So he got on a boat and he went in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Unlike Jonah, Jesus determines to go directly to the Gentiles. He's not afraid of God moving. He is God. He wants the Gentiles to see the light, to experience repentance. But on the way across the lake, this terrible storm arises. Again, in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. 
All right, so the Sea of Galilee is notorious for these sudden and violent windstorms. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, sits just about 700 feet below sea level. And, and its banks, especially on the north end, are very hilly, mountainous, even forming cliffs in some areas. But 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, right there in that picture. That's Mount Hermon, as seen from the Sea of Galilee. So you've got this warm air that sits in the basin over the Sea of Galilee, and then you've got the cold air from the mountain. And when the weather's right, the warm air from the sea begins to rise, the cold air from the mountain begins to come down, and wow, you have the ingredients for a a big storm. So uh, additionally, uh, the Sea of Galilee is a shallow lake, like Lake Erie. It's only about 200 feet deep. So when the wind picks up, the waves pick up in, in a dramatic way. And this storm, this kind of confluence of all of these elements creating these big storms is so famous, so notorious, that the Arabs have a name for it. The Arabs call these storms on the Sea of Galilee Sharkia, which means shark, the shark. So it was one of these sharks, these shark storms that comes upon Jesus and the disciples. Crashing waves over the side of the boat, filling them with water, threatening to sink the boats and take the disciples' lives. And remember what happened to Jonah as he was running from the Lord on the boat? He too faced a terrible windstorm. I'll read it from Jonah 1.4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So amazingly, while the wind was whipping and the waves were crashing, Jesus was sleeping. Verse 34, uh, no, 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? How can anybody sleep on a boat that's getting crashed with waves and wind? Seriously. Uh, it's incomprehensible. And yet, ironically, this is the only mention of Jesus sleeping in the whole Bible. This is bizarre. And while Jesus slept, the disciples are terrified. Remember, at the very least, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are fishermen, fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. They've spent most of their lives up to this point fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They know the weather. They've seen these, these shark storms. They're very familiar with navigating a boat. But this storm appears to be more violent than anything else they have ever experienced because they, are think, they think they're, they're about to die. They've never seen a storm like this. They've never been out in weather like this. All right, let's look at the parallel in Jonah. Jonah 1.6. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of a ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So both Jonah and Jesus, they sleep in the midst of this storm. Both are awoken by men who are experienced on water. You've got the disciples who are fishermen. You've got these sailors, seafarers. Both are terrified. They think they're about to die. And this is interesting. Both wake up the sleepers 
with sarcasm, with rudeness. Not only is Jesus, yeah, not, not only is it sarcastic, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an insult to Jesus. It's rude. So that's typical of somebody, though, who thinks that they're in a desperate situation, who's quite frustrated with their circumstances, and in this case, think they're about to die. But Jesus, the God who created the wind and the waves, he tolerates this sarcastic reproach from his disciples. And it is with, in my mind, for me, when people are condescending towards me, it is one of the, I struggle with that maybe more than anything else. They are clearly being condescending towards Jesus, but in his humility, as God of the universe, he does not abandon his disciples to the tempest. Verse 39, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. That takes humility. Jesus does not pray that the wind and and the, the waves subside. He does not offer some sacred ritual or some kind of incantation he gets up, and with the, with the power and authority of his word, the wind and the waves are calmed. And just as it was with the power and authority of his word that created the wind and the waves. So only the voice of God can stir up a storm, and only the voice of God can silence a storm. And so I want to read to you Psalm 107. This is a psalm about God's power. And I want you to listen for any similarities to our story about what Jesus is doing here. So Psalm 107, 25 through 29. For he commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. In the Old Testament, God is the only one who has the power to raise a storm. Mark is again highlighting the fact that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the God who created all of this. But the wind and the waves were calmed in a very different way in the story of Jonah. Jonah eleven, twelve, and 15. Jonah said to them, the sailors, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, How did Jonah know this? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. As God, Jesus spoke a word 
and the storm was silenced. As far as the sailors were concerned, they had to sacrifice Jonah to calm the storm. And here is the significant difference between these two stories. It's by Jesus' authority that the storm is silenced, and his disciples had absolutely nothing to do with it. Jonah had to be thrown to the waves to calm them. The storm would only be quelled when Jonah's sins were paid for. Do you see that? The storm rose in Jonah's situation because of his sins, because he was running from the Lord, and it was when his sins were paid for, when he was thrown into the water, that the storm was silenced, even though God still had mercy on Jonah. So these stories are no longer paralleling in this point. They are colliding into a profound point. Because you and I, all of us, are sailing headlong into a fierce storm and it is impossible for us to face. There's no way that we're going to make it out of this storm with our lives. The storm we're steering directly into and it's born out of our desires and our fears. And it is a storm that will take your eternal life unless we cry out to Jesus. So consider Christ's words in verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice, Jesus isn't rebuking the disciples for their lack of knowledge. Jesus is rebuking them for their fear. Why are you so afraid? While the God of the universe lies next to them in the boat, they're afraid. They fear because they don't know Jesus. Right? They, they don't fully believe who he is. And they couldn't. The disciples couldn't until they saw his death and his resurrection. Nonetheless, the real threat to faith, the real threat to all of our faith is fear and doubt. We don't believe that he is enough to save us. So unlike the disciples, you and I, we do know about Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet, this fear is exactly how we live. We look at the disciples, we know who Jesus is, we know about his death and his resurrection, and we look at the disciples and we say, how can you not believe? But we have that knowledge of his death and resurrection, and we fear in the exact same way as the disciples. Because how often do we put our faith in stuff rather than in Jesus? How often do we worry rather than put rather than consider the God who provides everything for us? How often do we lay down the Bible and we say later and then we turn on some movie or a show? How often do we fear that Jesus is not enough to satisfy us? That is the question. How often do we fear that Jesus is not enough to satisfy us? Because every single one of us, every single person in this room has in some way heard about who Jesus is. And yet at times we are all still plagued with this, this fear and this doubt that Jesus is not enough 
fear that he cannot satisfy us, fear that he cannot truly make us happy. Because our desire, the desire in every single one of us that drives us to do everything that we do is the desire to be happy. You're probably thinking, you might be thinking, I think he means joy. Yeah. It's, happiness is joy. Joy is happiness. There's, there's a sameness there. While there are differences, there's a sameness. We all want to be happy. We so desperately want to be happy. And there are people who feel like they're so unhappy that they escape from the pain. They take their life. And in some way, that's a chasing after happiness. We just want happiness. We crave it. We're hungry for it. And this is exactly what God created us for, to desire happiness. But he made us in such a specific way that we can only be happy when we are satisfied by God. We can only experience joy when we're satisfied by God. And yet we're quick to doubt it. We're quick to believe that he is not enough. We fear that he is not enough. So we turn to other things to make us happy. And the clouds begin to brew. The wind picks up and the waves build. I I don't think it's because we're lazy. I don't think it's, we're lazy that we watch Netflix rather than read our Bibles. I think it's because we really don't believe that we're going to find more satisfaction in the Bible than we will in Netflix or in TV or in whatever else. So even our desires for good things, they can supplant our desire for God. <laughs> like when we go out shopping, the day after we have been thankful to God for everything that he has provided for us, only to buy stuff for ourselves and, our, and for our loved ones, hoping that these things will in some way bring us back joy, even if it's temporary. This is just a small sampling of our ravenous materialism that, that so drives us to spend incredible amounts of money over a season where we were celebrating when God became flesh. Society doesn't preach Christ for all, it preaches materialism for all. And we line up before sunrise to buy and buy and buy. Cole's slogan this season, give joy, get joy. It's crazy, as if we can buy this. Who is their marketer? (laughs) Joy in Jesus has been supplanted by joy in stuff. Pornography, eating, gossip, popularity, video games, comforts, and on and on. All of these things, though they have their roots in good things, they can supplant God as our greatest desire. And when that happens... That means that you have feared Christ is not enough to satisfy your desires. The storm is raging, threatening to take your life. And now there's something to be afraid of. Be afraid. Fear 
for your life. Remember the great and terrible abyss that we talked about a few weeks ago. You cannot survive this storm. And the death that could result is an unending, eternal death. Because the supernatural is always going to produce more fear than the natural. Look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? When Jesus calms the storm, verse 39 says there was a great calm. But when the disciples realize what Jesus has done, and maybe a little bit of who he is, they are filled with great fear. Jesus asked them why they are afraid of the storm, but their fear of the storm is suddenly overpowered by their fear of Jesus. The language here, their fear of Christ is much greater than their fear of the storm. Just like the sailors in Jonah, who were more afraid of God than they ever were of the storm. Jonah 1, 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In both stories, the supernatural is more frightening than the natural, than any natural disaster you can imagine. God produces a greater fear than the storm. Why? Because when we see God reveal his power, we see that Jesus is, in fact, the holy God then we realize he has a claim on our lives. If he's a claim on the waves and the sea, he certainly has a claim on our lives. And since he created us with hearts that can only be satisfied by him, he will judge us based on how we seek happiness, based on how we seek satisfaction. So when you're searching everywhere else for happiness, fearing that Jesus is not enough to satisfy you, look, right there, Jesus is with you. Perhaps you have neglected him long enough that it is as if he were asleep. But wake him up and cry out, Do you care for me? I am perishing. And he will find immediately that he does care. And he will quiet the storm. That he is enough to satisfy your desire for happiness. And when your soul experiences his satisfaction, there is a great peace you will know. A peace that surpasses understanding. So what does it mean to have this storm calmed? To have peace in your life? Well, it means that Jesus rose. And he brought the peace. You couldn't calm the waves. You could only feed them. The waves, your insatiable desires, they will consume you. But like Jonah, you do not need to be sacrificed to these waves. There is a substitute. And he stands and says, in the midst of your raging desires, he says, peace. 
through his perfect life and death on the cross, he has brought to you peace between you and God. He has torn down the hostility. And he has made this peace available to you. And so now, if you come to him, you can rest in Christ. Rest in Christ and experience that peace. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Colossians 3.15 tells us how to do this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You have to let the peace of Christ rule in you. How do you let something happen to you? And you stop resisting. You kind of you submit to it. You allow it to happen. So you have to submit to this peace, to this rest. So there's going to be a lot of things that try to press in. You know, work, these materialistic things, demands from your family, whatever. They're going to be pressing in. And you have to resist those things. Resist those things. If they would take from you the peace of Christ. If you don't, the waves are going to get choppy. Resist them. Consider the peace of Christ of Christ again. Remember what he paid for you. And then, it's so simple, and then be thankful. Thankfulness is like a high-pressure system that keeps the storm away. So, thank God for showing you his goodness. Thank God for his generosity. Thank God for his love that he displays in Christ Jesus towards you. Thank God that you have a nice warm house to go in when it's a little bit snowy outside. Thank God that you have a bed to sleep in. Thank God that you have a family. Thank God that we have a church that we can come together and worship in. Thank God for the food that you had this morning. Thank God for the food that you will have when you leave here. Thank God for changes that are happening around here that are bringing life and hope to this body. I could spend the rest of the day on thanking God for things. Be thankful. So when you feel that desire creeping up, want to buy something and you don't really need it and your child doesn't really need it or whoever else. First, what if you took a moment to consider what Christ has done for you? Does it sound bizarre? You're thinking about buying something and take a moment to think about what Christ has done for you? It's not that bizarre. Let thankfulness first satisfy you. Let the the satisfaction of Christ 
Again, wash over you as you practice thankfulness. Push out the desire and, and let that push out the desire for other things that are just momentary pleasures. And, push, and practicing thankfulness is going to push you back into the calmer water, back into fellowship with joy in, in Jesus. Now, that is a major reason. The, let me say it, it is the singular reason that I chose Mark to preach on when I started here. Because I wanted us, I want us to see Jesus, to enjoy him, to get to know him. And as a result, as we see and as we know, our hearts should be a wellspring of thanksgiving. So let this thanksgiving, let your thanksgiving define how you approach Christmas trees and presents. Let it define how you approach carols and gatherings. Let us praise Jesus for all he has done in our lives. And and rather than feeling anxiety for getting everybody the right present, let his peace reign in your heart. Maybe it feels like a bit of a stretch right now from Jesus calming a storm in Galilee. But there's a question at the end of this passage. Who then is this? Who then is this? It's a question that is intended to unsettle you. Because if Jesus has the power to calm a storm, in the same way that God calms the storm with Jonah, then Jesus is God. If he is God, he has a claim on your life. He has authority over you, and you will be held accountable for what you put your faith in, for what you seek happiness from. In Christ, or in stuff. In Jesus, or in you. Who then is this? If you choose to find satisfaction in things other than God, if you fear that Christ is not enough to make you happy, then expect to be thrown into the water. If you choose to trust in Christ as your soul's greatest satisfaction, as your soul's greatest joy, then he is going to provide for you, like I said, he's going to provide for you a peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't matter how big the waves get. And you remember the verses from Psalm, the waves mounted up to the heavens and down to the depths below. What's the difference between the, uh, the peak and the valley of the wave? What's that called? Anyone? Okay. That's, that's what it's called, though. Norman, you're a sailor. What is that? <laughs> anyway, it was big. It was really big. Those are big waves. A peace that surpasses understanding, despite the waves that we experience, whether they rise to the heights or and sink to the depths. Christ is our peace when we seek satisfaction in him. And we're going to fail at this, I promise. We're going to fail at this. I fail at this. 
we'll find ourselves in the storm again and nothing we can do seems to bring us peace. Our desire for Jesus seems to be toppled by all of these other things and they're pressing and they're demanding from us. But always we can cry out to Jesus because he's right there. He is right there and he's ready to help. He's ready to speak and he is always generous with his peace. Because, I love this, because if we are his followers, he does not let us perish. We do not get thrown to the waves. He calms the storm. And when we see that happen, when we see Christ bring peace to the chaos in a way that no one else could, in a way that we couldn't, in a way that nothing else can do, we see that Christ is God. We know it. We experience it for ourselves. God, the one who brought us peace. And this is meant to increase our faith. It's meant to place us solidly in the center of Christ's joy. And we are thankful. Let it produce thankfulness in you that you would be thankful for everything he has done for you, for your life, for satisfying your soul, for filling you with the joy of the Father. Because once you have seen the supernatural in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you must ask yourself this question. Who then is this? Will it lead you to put your trust in Jesus? Let's pray. Oh God, you made the wind and the waves. You made our desires. You even made the storm. And all we are is tossed in it. Just so that we could cry out to you. Stand Christ and speak peace over our lives. May we be a body of believers that knows your peace. And yeah, when these desires come and they pull at us, may we again remember everything that you have done for our lives and be filled with thankfulness for that. Be satisfied by you. So simple and so difficult. Oh, we trust in you. We must rely on you to do this work. We have no ability to calm the storm ourselves, so we trust in you, a good and generous God who, for some reason that you only know, have chosen to love us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.